Hey everyone, this is Pastor Jonathan. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in and listening to our sermon from Connection Church in Lead. And I wanted to encourage you, while listening to a sermon online can be very helpful and edifying, and we do appreciate you listening, if you're not connected into a local body of believers, I would encourage you to do so. We, we are commanded not to neglect the gathering together. So find a gospel-centered, Bible-preaching church where you can submit to the elders and fellowship there. If you don't have a church home and you are in the Leeds, South Dakota area, feel free to join us. We would love to come have you join us and worship with us. With that said, thank you and enjoy the sermon. Well, good morning again. I am so happy that you have decided to come out and worship God with us. This morning, we have already worshiped God in several ways through the learning of truths and the catechism question, through the singing of psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, through praying. But this morning, we are now transitioning into our time of worship through the reading of God's word and hearing it preached. Uh, We have moved into our study of the book of Ephesians. Uh, We went verse by verse through the gospel of Matthew, and we wrapped that up a few weeks ago, and then we transitioned into Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And just a little bit of a recap, this letter is is a, a gospel exposition. So really, Paul's idea in writing this letter, he wrote this as what's known as a circulatory letter. That means that it went primarily to the church in Ephesus. It was a a church in a very culturally diverse area. It was a a central place within the Roman government. Um, But so he sent it to the church. But the purpose of this letter, and you can kind of tell as we read through it, is Paul is speaking to the church as a whole. And so it was meant to be sent out to the surrounding churches. You actually get an idea of how this might work in the opening of, of Revelation, where there's a letter to the seven churches. And you, and you kind of see the progression of the churches. You know, he writes to Ephesus, he writes to Pergamum, you know, and, and that was a commonly well-traveled route, the list of those churches. And so likely this letter went a similar route. And so Paul is writing to the church as a whole. He's explaining the gospel. So as we wrapped up Matthew, you know, the gospel of Matthew, now we are in an exposition of the gospel inspired by the Holy Spirit, written to the church as a whole by the Apostle Paul. And Ephesians is a great letter because there's virtually three chapters of pure theology. We've got half the book that is just who God is, the mystery of salvation, you know, what God's plan is. And then we have the following three chapters being application. Almost in light of this theology, here's how you live life. And it's practical. It's very practical. Husbands, here's how you love your wives. You know, here's how you parent your children well. Here's how you're to train and educate your children. Wives, here's how you are to submit to your husbands. Right? It's, it's good, earthy, practical stuff. But he opens with three chapters of theology. And, and this morning we are diving into verses 3 through 14. And this is one sentence in Greek. I'll talk more about that later. But this is a single sentence. And Paul is praising God for the mystery of salvation. So this morning, the passage is in your handout. I'd ask you to stand with me out of reverence for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. 
by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions, according to the riches of his grace, which he has caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him, for an administration of the fullness of times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in in the heavens and things on the earth in him. In him also we have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, to the end that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Behold the word of God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that we would echo the cry of Paul. May we echo this opening doxology, this opening praise to you. May we say this morning, blessed be God. Lord, this passage that is full of very dense and very deep theology, may it be used to move our hearts into worship. May we see the beauty of the work that you have done, that you have accomplished in salvation. May we perhaps move past the stigma that we have of certain phrases in this, in this chapter. May we be convicted and may we come to your word and may we be more concerned with what you have said than what we think. So we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, as I was preparing my sermon, I didn't prepare it this morning. I prepared it through the week. Don't worry. Um, But this week, as I was preparing my sermon, I I try to sum up my sermon in a sentence if I ever can, which is really, really hard if you were with us like a month or so ago when I covered that massive section in Matthew. That's a really hard thing to do. I wasn't able to do it that time. But I always try to sort of sum up, even just for my own help, like what am I trying to say? Like what, what, what is being said in this passage? How could we, if we were to sum up a passage... In a single sentence, what what God is saying through this passage, what would it be? Well, for this passage, really what I see is, is, is this. Paul, by the Spirit, is unveiling the mystery of the gospel and the working of the Trinity in the sovereign, salvific election of the saints. Every word in that is important. We're going to go through that. But that's what's happening here. Paul, by the Spirit, is unveiling the mystery of the gospel and the working of the Trinity in the sovereign, salvific election of the saints. Now, as we, as we dive into this, it helps us to understand perhaps a little bit of the context of this. Like, like this is a dense passage, and if we're not careful, we can sort of get lost in, in the individualities. Maybe we should pull back a little bit and see what is this passage as a whole saying? Well, first, I think it's helpful for us to note, I mentioned it earlier, this is one sentence in Greek. Now, now by English standards, Paul would be terrible at grammar, right? Like, he would be awful at it. There's so many run-on sentences. This, this is, grammatically speaking, I mean, you know, I was homeschooled, my mom taught me grammar. This is like her nightmare passage, right? <laughs> like, 
She loved helping me learn how to diagram sentences and all of that. This, this would be a nightmare to her. But this is a single sentence in Greek. It does not break. Verses 3 through 14 is one long run-on sentence. And Paul is praising God. He opens by saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. So it's one sentence. It's one complete thought. So we shouldn't really separate it. But we do have to dive in and understand what's happening here. So broadly speaking, uh, a resource that I like to use, I guess I I should say this. A resource I like to use is uh, what's known as the Reformation Study Bible. It's from Ligonier Ministries. It's a wonderful study Bible. It's got amazing notes. And it breaks it down in this way. I thought it was really helpful. We see the work of the Trinity in salvation in this. We see the work of the triune God. And it breaks it down this way. It opens in verses 4 through 6 with a praise to the Father. Praising God the Father who elects people to salvation. Right? So that's verses 4 through 6. Then it moves on and it praises the Son who redeems. So we have the Father who elects, the Son who redeems in verses 7 through 12. It's the primary focus is the Son redeeming sinners. And finally, this, this, sentence, this single sentence closes out by praising the Spirit who seals the saints. Verses 13 through 14. And so you see there's this breakdown. You have the work of each member of the Trinity in salvation. You have the Father who elects, the Son who redeems, and the Spirit who seals. So that is the format that this sentence takes. So let's, let's dive in. Let's look at that opening benediction, that opening doxology, that opening praise that Paul gives. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love how one commentator puts it. He says, when God blesses believers, he bestows a certain favor upon them that they do not deserve. Right? That makes sense. So when God blesses believers, he's bestowing favor that we don't deserve. When they, the believers, bless him, it is an act of praise and adoration that he richly deserves. Right? So when God blesses us, it's not something we deserve. But when we bless him, when we bless his name, what we're doing, what we're literally doing in that is giving him what he deserves. And so Paul opens with this saying, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what is the reasoning for this? Why does Paul open with a blessing of the father? Blessed be the father. Well, he says this because continuing on in verse three, he says, the God and father of our Lord Jesus, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And think of that. Paul is saying, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus because he has blessed us. Right? And, and who among us, especially as Christians, right? Who among us could deny that God has blessed us? I, I bet if we were to stop right here and just go around the room and describe the blessings of God, we could fill the rest of our time with how God has blessed us. Right? We are the people of God. We know how he has blessed us. But Paul is being specific here. He says that God the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Well, that's quite the phrase, isn't it? He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Now, instantly, our minds go to, we know, we know that this is not necessarily an exhaustive phrase, that every single Christian will be blessed in every aspect of their life, right? Like, we know that's not true. Christians get sick. Christians die. Christians have financial problems. This is not a, a promise of prosperity. This is a spiritual promise from God that he has given us every blessing. 
And this is explained in the next two phrases, in the heavenly places, in Christ. So he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And this is the fun part because the first question that comes to everyone's mind is, what does that mean that he's blessed us in the heavenly places? And the long and the short of it is, no idea. Right? Because like commentators try to describe what this is. And, and, and really the best way I can explain what this means is the author of Hebrews makes a claim that when we come to worship God, we're coming, you know, before the throne of grace, we're coming into the heavenly places. Like, there's a real aspect that what we're doing this morning, what is actually happening this morning, is we are being taken into the heavenly realm to worship God before his throne. Like, there is an aspect of that, but yet we still know we're here on earth, right? Well, it's a similar thing. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That means we are united with Christ. We are made righteous with Christ, right? And we can see certain aspects of it. But I think the beauty of this phrase is we can never have an exhaustive knowledge of what this means. We as Christians can maybe point to specific things. What does it mean to be blessed in the heavenly places? It means that my sins are forgiven before God, right? It means that I'm no longer in my sins. It means that I have the favor of God upon my life, right? We can, we can pick those things. We can say it means this, it means this, but we can never come to an exhaustive understanding of what it means to be blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But I do love that we have that limit, that he says, in Christ. This blessing is not because we earned it. It's not because we're good enough. It's not because we have some faux righteousness of ourselves. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Why? Because we are in Christ. So this is the first thing that Paul says. He says, blessed be God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then he continues in verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Why is Paul blessing God the Father? Because he says the Father chose us. What a mysterious phrase. That God would choose us. What a, what a beautiful thing to think of that God, before the foundations of the world, when was this choice made? This choice was not made last Tuesday, right? This choice was not made when you were first born. This choice was not made when you were eight years old and you prayed the sinner's prayer for the first time. That's not when God chose you. The choice of God, Paul says, goes back to before the foundations of the world. What does that mean? It means that before the beginning of the book, before in the beginning... God had already chosen us. And he's chosen us in him. One commentator, I think, said it just perfectly. He says, in short, the name of Christ excludes all merit and everything which men have of their own. For when he says that we are chosen in Christ, it follows that in ourselves, we are unworthy. That phrase, in Christ, in him, in the beloved. It's repeated again and again in this, in, this, in this section. But it means that the name of Christ excludes all merit. Why did God choose us before the foundations of the world? It wasn't because we were righteous. It wasn't because we were better than anyone else. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Why? 
that we would be holy and blameless. It was not in and of itself an arbitrary choice. We were chosen to be righteous. We were chosen to obey God, to submit to him, to follow his commands, to be holy and blameless. We'll get into that more in a minute. But then verse 5, he says this, By predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. I think all of us could identify a buzzword within that. I like to describe the word predestination as likely the most hated word in Christianity. Right? There's confusion on this. It's upsetting. It makes us mad when we discuss the doctrine of predestination. I can speak from personal experience that in my younger years, I had a vehement hatred of this word. A little bit of background on me. I, I grew up in a very different church environment than what we have here this morning. And part of my growing up process was you never really knew what you would hear from the Sunday school teachers, from the pastor, from whoever was up in the pulpit. It, it, was, it was very much structured on the format of you pick a verse and however that verse resonates to you is probably what it means. Right? I think we're all familiar with that. I think we're all probably guilty of that, right? Like, you know, taking a verse and going, well, you know, I think this verse means this. Or any of you who know me know my most hated, like, small group question in history, like Sunday school small group question ever is, what does that mean to you? Like, I, I hate that. That is, like, my biggest pet peeve when someone asks, hey, what does that mean to you? I, I'm very much one of those people, I don't, I don't care what it means to you. Tell me what it means. But when I was younger... I grew up in an environment where it, it very much was that. It was, what does this mean to you? And so I grew up kind of in this mindset in the church environment I was in that you couldn't actually know what Scripture meant. Like, there was no way you could actually understand it, right? You know, everyone has their own interpretation, and who's to say which one's right and which one's wrong? We've all heard that argument made. I mean, who's, who are you to say that that's what God meant by that phrase? Well, that was, that was my struggle. And, and that's a very uh, foundation of sand, right? Like you can't actually stand on that. So when I was first exposed, having grown up that way, when I was first exposed to someone saying, well, God predestines people into salvation. I went, no. Of course not. They were like, well, I mean, go to scripture. I mean, look at what this says. And of course, my response, who are you to say that that's what God meant by that? And so I hated this passage. Like, I must admit, I probably would never have admitted this when I was in that place. But I hated this passage so much that I would just skip the gospel of Ephesians. And when I would read through Romans, I kind of skip from like 7 to 11. Right? Like I'd be going through and be like, I don't like that section. So I'm just going to flip a few pages over. I don't like what that's saying. And you see, I was in that place for a lot of years, and I grew this immense hatred for the idea that God predestines people to salvation. The idea of the elect, the idea that God would choose some and reject others, I hated it. I despised it. But one day, I was wrestling through this idea. I would always come back to it. Someone would bring it up, and I would hate it, but I realized I never really had an argument against it. And so one day, I was listening through 
The Diary of Jonathan Edwards. It's a very random thing to be listening, listening through. But I found a podcast that had The Diary of Jonathan Edwards, and I was listening through it. I always enjoy Jonathan Edwards because he spelled his name the same way I spell mine, which is it's kind of an exclusive club when you spell Jonathan the same way because <laughs> no one spells it the same. And so I was listening to that, and, and he was detailing the same problem I was having. How do I reconcile the fact that God chooses some but not others? I don't like that. And so in his diary, he's detailing this struggle, this wrestling through this. And he prayed a prayer. He wrote a prayer in his diary, and it cut me to the heart. His prayer was, God, I don't want to care what I think. I only want to care what you have said. I don't want to care what I think. I only want to care what you said. And I was instantly convicted of all those times that I flipped over those passages and ignored what God was saying. Because I realized my conviction was not based on what God had said. My conviction was because I came to a difficult doctrine and I went, nope. And I rejected it because of my own thoughts. My own thought. And so... After listening to that, I could tell you where I was. I was working. I was working on a Ford pickup, and I immediately was convicted. I prayed that same prayer. I said, God, I don't want to care what I think. I only want to care what you said. And when I got home from work that day, I read through the book of Ephesians like three or four times, and I went, okay, so this is what God says. Because that's the point. The point is not what do we think. The point is not when we come to these passages in Scripture that are difficult, that are hard to understand. The point is not for us to go, here's what I think. The point is for us to stop and go, what is being said? In verse 4 and 5, what is being said? Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Well, what is being said there is God is the active party in salvation. We are the passive participant. If you look at the language there, who is doing the work? Who is the one described as doing something? And who is the one as being described as receiving something? Right? It's just a good way to understand something. When you're trying to understand something someone said, you look at those ways of, of evaluating it. What is being said is God is the one before the foundation of the world who is doing the work. This is theologically what is known as monergism. There's two words. There's monergism and there's synergism. Mono meaning one, sin meaning multiple, synergist meaning multiple, right? God is the active party, the single active participant in this miracle of salvation. And I think this brings us to a question. One question I like to ask Christians is why are you saved? And the person sitting next to you lost. Why is your neighbor lost, but you're saved? Right? That's, that's the question, isn't it? Why is it that two people can go into a meeting, hear the gospel proclaimed, one of them leaves righteous before God, having confessed their sins and placed their faith in Christ, and the other person, having heard the exact same message, leaves lost, damned to hell? What separates that? 
And this is where it gets tricky because our response so often is to say, well, I'm saved because I walked the aisle, because I prayed the prayer, right? I'm saved because I. Alistair Begg says it. He's got that beautiful Scottish brogue that I cannot imitate. But he says it well. He says, if you say, I am saved because I, you fundamentally miss the gospel. The answer is, I am saved because he. And what the apostle is saying here is we are saved because the father chose us in him. He predestined us before the foundations of the world. And we ought to love this doctrine. Notice what Paul does not do. There is another place in scripture where Paul answers the objections, right? He makes the same case and instantly he answers the objections. Because the obvious objection to this is to say, look, God chooses some. He elects some unto salvation. And the response is, that's not fair. Right? That's the instant response. Right? That, that's what our human hearts do. We go, God chooses some and not others. That's not fair. Right? And Paul answers that objection. He answers it in Romans chapter 9. He goes through that objection. He answers it. And he says, look, God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And he will harden whom he will harden. Right? This is the will of God. The famous statement within Romans chapter 9 is, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? But that's not what he does in this passage. What Paul is doing in this passage is he is giving a doxology of worship. He opens by saying, Blessed be God. Why? Because of the doctrine of election. That boggles our minds, but we have to learn to love this. We have to learn to rejoice over this. We ought to be able to echo what Paul says. Yes, I'm not saying it's not a difficult doctrine, but we ought to be able to echo what Paul says and say, God is blessed. Like, we ought to bless God's name because of this. And and yes, there is a place for answering those objections. But God predestined us unto salvation through Christ to the Father. Why? Right, that's another question we always ask. Why? 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 How did God do it? Why did he choose some and not others? Like, how does this work, right? Well, Paul says that the reason is that it is according to the pleasure of his will. Perhaps the best way this is phrased theologically is, before time began, according to the counsel of God, this happened. God is in full control, and it was according to his counsel. Now, we as mere humans are not privy to the counsel of God. But what we do know is that it is not according to our will. It's not according to our actions. It's not according to our own righteousness. What is the reasoning? It is the pleasure of his will. R.C. Sproul says this. He says, Paul says that God has done this in accordance with the pleasure, with his pleasure and will. He's done it in accordance with his pleasure and will. This is the only reason to be found in scripture that explains why God elects people for salvation. That's the only reason given within scripture is according to the will of God, the pleasure of his will. And he continues, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. It's according to the pleasure of his will, to the praise of God's grace. You know, as a church, 
summing up our belief statement as a church is really the five solas of the Reformation. If you're unfamiliar with those, it is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. That's why we're saved. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, glory of God alone. That's what we believe. And that's what's being said here. It is to the praise of God's grace. Let me ask you this. If you earned your salvation, could it ever be considered grace? Of course not. But let me ask you this. If God is the one who does all the work in salvation, could it be anything but grace? No, of course not. The only reason we are saved is because of the gracious work of God. We are saved by grace alone, in the beloved. And that phrase, in the beloved, is where Paul switches. He begins to to turn now. We had the Father who elects us. We have the Son who redeems us. And now Paul is transitioning and he's saying, now we look at the Son. We are saved by the work of the Father. He is the one who elects us before the foundation of the world unto salvation. But it is the Son who redeems us. Verses 7 and 8 say this. In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of His grace. Which He caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight. In Christ we have redemption. One immediately thinks of the words of the Apostle Peter. There is no name found in heaven or earth under which or by which men must be saved. It is by Christ alone. Right? It's by grace alone and it is by Christ alone. He is the one through which we have redemption. We're not redeemed through the faith of our parents. We're not redeemed through the faith of our pastor. We're not redeemed through any other intermediary, right? As Christians, we are redeemed by Christ. And it is through his blood. What is the mechanism by which God uses to forgive sins? It is the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross. We just went through this in Matthew. We just saw the depiction of the brutal crucifixion of Christ. It was through the shedding of his blood that we have the forgiveness of our sins. We could spend months probably years going through how Christ is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. But God says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It is through the blood of Christ that our sins are washed away. We're no longer in our sins. We're no longer in our transgressions. And this is according to the riches of the Father's grace. Again, there's that idea. What else could it be? What else could it possibly be? If I don't earn it, it has to be grace. It has to be imputed to me. And here is the good news. The grace that the Father lavishes on us. He caused, you know, uh, verse 8 here, according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us. He caused it to abound to us. Those should be some of the most comforting words to any Christian. That this grace that we have abounds to us from the Father. It is not a limited, limited amount of our sin that's forgiven, right? It is all of it. 
washed clean, forgiven, because the Father has lavished his grace on us. He did not say, I will forgive 50% of your sins and you have to atone for the other 50%. He didn't even say, I'll forgive 99%. But you know, there's that 1% and you ought to work really hard to take care of that. I think every one of us know that if he had done that, we would be in our sin forever. But no, he has lavished his grace on us. Verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him. Paul is talking about the mystery of salvation. And I think a lot of times we can miss it. You know, we are very blessed in our day and age. Many of us have many, many Bibles. Many of us have the ability to just read scripture whenever we want. And it's complete, right? We have the fullness of the scriptural revelation. Right? From Genesis to Revelation, where it's complete. But think of what the church in Ephesus and the surrounding churches would have thought having read this. This is the first time that the fullness of the mystery of salvation is being revealed. I, you just picture that for a moment. You know, you've heard the gospel. You understand that you're saved through somehow what Christ did on the cross By faith in him, you've heard it from the apostles. Yes, faith in him is what saves us. But there is such mystery around that. Well, how does that work? How am I forgiven of my sins? And here, at this moment in history, they receive this letter from Paul where he details the mystery of God's will. He's he's praising God and he's detailing this mystery. And and this ties into a theological principle that's known as progressive revelation. Now, there's a way to take this way off the deep end, right? But the principle is this, that God did not reveal the fullness of his truth all at once, right? Like he didn't sit Adam and Eve down in the garden and go, okay, pay really close attention to what I'm going to tell you. I've got 66 books worth of information for you to take down. Right? That didn't happen. And we even see this in the Old Testament. I mean, I mean, picture the Old Testament saints. They're given the sacrificial system. They know in many ways it's symbolic, but they don't know exactly what it's symbolizing. They don't know exactly what it's leading up to. They're not fully sure exactly what the Messiah is going to look like. There's hints in a lot of the prophets that the Messiah is going to fulfill all of this somehow. But if you were to stop someone before Christ came and go, well, how is this going to work? They probably couldn't tell you. We have faith that God's going to do it, but we don't know how. And then Christ shows up. Christ comes on the scene. And in him, the fullness of the law is revealed, right? And he is the fulfillment of everything that comes before. Well, then there's so much packed into his little three years of ministry. And then the church goes, well, now what? How do we understand these mysteries? And what are we supposed to do with them? And God commissions the apostles to write letters and to send out letters to the church and tell them how to live and explain to them the truth of what God has done, the fullness of what God has done. And so just picture being part of the church in Ephesus in the first century. And you hear this. You hear this truth that God at last is making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. And Paul continues on this beautiful phrase, verse 10, for an administration of the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth 
in him. Well, if you've been a part of our church for any amount of time, you know that I have a very favorite phrase. Christ is king. The cry of the early church. Christus curias. When the early church was faced with denying Christ, they were told to say uh, that Caesar is Lord. Right? They, they, were, they were put to death if they refused to say Caesar is Lord. But the church unanimously did not echo that cry. They said, no, Caesar is not Lord. Christ is Lord. That's what Paul is saying here. For an administration of Christ, for the fullness of time, again, we see this idea that, that Christ came at the perfect time, at the predestined time, according to the plan of the Father, and that all things are summed up in Christ, in heaven and on earth. And this is a very familiar phrase that we should be very familiar with because Paul is echoing back to what Christ said in the Great Commission. What does it mean that Christ has the administration and that all things are summed up in him, things in heaven and things in earth, on earth? It's the same phrasing as the Great Commission. It's almost, it's eerily similar. When Christ says, all authority has been given to me. Not just in heaven, but in heaven and on earth. Go therefore make disciples. And Paul is reminding them of that. That this, this plan, the fullness of this plan is the kingship of Christ. That Christ is Lord. Verse 11 says, In him we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined. There's that word again. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There's that phrase again, in him. You know, that phrase, in him or in Christ, some variation of that is mentioned 12 times in this passage. 12 times in this praise. Paul says, in Christ, in him, in him. And he opens this saying, Christ is king and in him We've been made an inheritance in him. Think back to that quote from the theologian, the commentator who says that, that, that in Christ, what that is saying is that it is not in us. In him, we have been made an inheritance. Notice the tense. That's not future tense. We will be made into an inheritance. It's not even present tense. We are being made into an inheritance. That is past tense. In Christ we have been made an inheritance, having been predestined. Again, hearkening back before the foundations of the earth. Why? According to the purpose of him. It is not our purposes. It is not the purposes of man. It is not the purposes of any king on this earth. It is the purpose of God. Him, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. One of the most beautiful things about this passage is it so clearly details that God is sovereign. Now, if that's a new phrase to you, what that means is God is in control over all things. All things happen because of his will. And there's a lot of comfort that comes in that. There's a lot of comfort in trying times. There's a lot of comfort in difficult situations. To know that God is the one who, as Paul says here, works all things according to the counsel of his will. And this is comforting because we know the character of God. Right? We don't know 
exactly why the people we love get sick. We don't know the exact reason and the exact counsel that the people we love suffer and die or that we suffer. Right? We know death and suffering comes because of sin, yes, but we don't always know exactly how to track that back to the purpose of God. Right? There are certain things that we go, I, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. This is hard. How could this be according to the purpose of God? The comfort comes in knowing in those hard times, why is my son sick? Because somehow, This will glorify God. Somehow God will be glorified in this. Why? Why did this happen? And we don't have the full picture, right? But we know that all things happen according to the counsel of his will. And this is so comforting. I like to jokingly say, in crisis, everyone becomes a Calvinist. Because we know this inherently as Christians, right? We know this. When crisis happens, when difficulties come, what's the first thing we say to someone suffering? God has a plan. Right? That's the first thing that we tell someone when, when they're suffering, when there's pain. Hey, take heart. God has a plan. And that's true. That God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Because he is the sovereign one. I believe it was Abraham Kuyper who said there's not one square inch of all of creation over which Christ does not declare mine. And R.C. Sproul said it had a similar statement where he says there's no maverick molecules. What he meant by that is there's not a single molecule of all of creation that is outside of God's control. And that is so comforting because we know who God is. And this is why verse 12 says to the end that we who first have hoped in Christ would be the the praise of his glory. To the end, to the purpose, to the reason, to the purpose that we who first have hoped in Christ, Paul talking about that first generation of Christians, would be to the praise of his glory. Now, most of you should know this. What is the chief end of man? Somebody, somebody's got this. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and, and enjoy him forever, right? This is the old catechism question, right? The old Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's one of the greatest questions in any catechism. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, straight from Paul, through the Holy Spirit, what is the chief end of the salvation of man? The glory of God. What is the chief end of the, of the salvation of man? The glory of God. And this is why, like I said, I brought up the five solas, really what we believe as a church. It ends with soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. God, the active party in salvation, the one who predestines us, the one who redeems us. He gets all the glory. But Paul continues, verses 13 through part of 14, the first part of 14. Listen to this. In him, you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him, that is in Christ, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession. 
So you see, we see the Father who elects us, the Son who redeems us, and now we see the Spirit who seals us. God is the one who chose us, He's the one who redeems us, and He's the one who holds us firm to Him. We are sealed in Christ, not by our own will, but by the Spirit. And that spirit that we all have, every Christian has the Holy Spirit because you cannot be saved without the spirit. That spirit is a pledge of our inheritance. It is the first payment for the inheritance that we will have in Christ. Unto the redemption of God's own possession. We are not our own possession. We are God's possession. We are Elected by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit. I don't, I don't know about you, but I am so glad that it is not my hold on Christ that saves me. I think about it. If it was my, let's say it was, it was, it was, it was my verbal confession, right? It, it wasn't the work of Christ. It was my verbal confession saying, yes, I love Jesus, right? If that is the principal thing that holds me to him, what happens if I no longer say that, if I look back on an emotional experience when the preaching was great and the music was just right and I walked an aisle, what happens to my salvation when that emotion is gone? Or worse, what happens when I question if God is good? What happens when I doubt? But the beauty of our faith is that it is not, to quote Spurgeon, It is not my hold on Christ that saves me. It is Christ's hold on me. And his grip doesn't slip. That gives so much peace. And this is why this verse, this single single sentence in Greek ends with this. The last part of verse 14. To the praise of his glory. Again, I ask, what is the chief end of the salvation of man? The glory of God. God is glorified through our salvation. This ends with that that echo of the phrase, soli deo gloria. Glory to God alone. So what do we do with this passage? I think so often it's easy. There are passages that are easy, right? When we get to the last half of Ephesians, it's going to be offensive, but it's going to be easy, right? <laughs> like, like, God's going to be telling us how to live, and that tends to make people mad when God tells us how to live. But that's easy, right? That's okay. Here's how I'm supposed to be a husband. Pretty straightforward. I don't like it, but it's pretty straightforward. Here's how I'm supposed to be a wife, right? Like, but what do we do with passages like this? First and foremost, I think that we should echo Paul's love of this doctrine. Paul doesn't give any caveats. He just says, here's how you're saved. And it's in a praise. He goes, look, God is sovereign. He doesn't stop and go, now, I know this is going to offend some of you. I know this is going to make you mad because we have this idea that we all have to be completely autonomous. He doesn't do that. He says, look at how beautiful what God did is. And he just goes into it. And we ought to do the same. We ought to love this. We ought to go, wow. The Father... I don't know why, I don't even really understand how, but the Father chose me before the foundation of the world. I don't know why, but the Son redeemed me 
And now the Spirit has sealed me? What other response could I have than to praise God that he's sovereign? And that mentality will carry you. I can speak to this from personal experience. That idea and that mentality will carry you through the darkest nights, through the hardest situations, when you don't even know how to cry. The idea that God is in control. But practically, practically, how do we apply this? There's an old phrase. I don't even know where it originates in the church, but it's theology leads to doxology. What that means is knowing God leads to worshiping God. Theology simply means the study of God, the knowledge of God, right? It seems to have kind of become a dirty word within the church in our day, but theology means knowing God. Doxology means worshiping God. Knowing God leads to worshiping God. So what is the practical application of this? We ought to echo exactly what Paul says. Blessed be God. We ought to hear this passage. And rather than kind of ruffle our feathers at what it's saying, we ought to go, wow. How can I do anything but worship him because of this? Throughout the week, as we go throughout the week, We ought to be reminded that knowing God, knowing what salvation is, knowing this mystery of salvation that for some reason God chose to reveal. As we think about this, as we ponder this, it ought to cause us to worship God. So what is this passage saying? This passage is saying, Paul is saying, by the Spirit, he is unveiling the mystery of the gospel and the working of the Trinity and the sovereign, salvific election of the saints. The mystery of the gospel has been unveiled. We see the roles of each member of the Godhead in salvation, what the Father does, what the Son does, what the Spirit does. All to save us. So we, if you are a Christian this morning, our response ought to be to worship especially since we are going from here into this week to engage our community with the gospel, right? We are leaving this place to engage our community with the gospel. That's, that's what we're doing. So as we go from this place, we ought to worship God. We ought to go, wow, God has saved me. I didn't deserve it. I didn't even do anything, right? It wasn't according to the great will of Jonathan. That's not a very great will anyway. It was according to the pleasure of his will. We ought to worship. So each week, we close out with the doxology. We're going to partake in communion here a moment. But as we close out in that song, the doxology, think about the words. Just look on the back. Like I said, we'll take communion and then we will sing this. But just just listen to these words. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That sounds a lot like what Paul was saying, doesn't it? Who has blessed us in Christ in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. What is the mission of the church? It's to see the world praising God. We're to take the gospel into the world to see the entire world worshiping God. What's our mission here in, in, in Leeds, South Dakota as a church? Our mission is all of Christ for all of Leeds, right? We believe that the message of Christ applies to every person, every aspect, every institution in Leeds, South Dakota. 
And that's our mission, to see all creatures here below praising God. Praise him above ye heavenly host. The beauty of worship, we went through this when we went through the passage in Isaiah. We join in with the heavenly choir when we worship God. The heavens are constantly declaring the glory of God, right? God is not just king on this earth, right? God is king over the entire universe. I heard someone say, uh, uh, jokingly, it's not Christian nationalism, it's Christian intergalactarianism or something like that, right? Like because Christ is king over everything in the universe. There's not one square inch in all of creation over which Christ is not declared mine. And we see, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Paul detailed what each member of the Trinity did for us in salvation. The Father elected us, the Son redeemed us, the Spirit sealed us. But this morning, as we are going from here to do ministry in our community, to reach our community with the gospel, we need to be reminded of the gospel. Normally we take communion every other week. I decided to skip that practice and take it probably three weeks in a row. Because the act of partaking communion is a physical reminder that we are not saved because of us. We're not redeemed. My sin is not forgiven. It's not washed away because I did some religious act. My sin is forgiven because Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed for me. Remember what Paul said, in Christ we're redeemed through his blood. Right? It was through the sacrifice. So Christ instituted this with his disciples where he said, that this is his body, this is his blood. We know that spiritually Christ is with us in this act of communion. We are truly communing with him. But it is a physical reminder that we are not saved of our own work. I think what a good reminder this morning. As we see the mystery of salvation, we are not saved because of us. Remember that phrase from Alistair Begg, I am not saved because I. I'm not saved because I did anything. I am saved because so this morning, before we go out to do work in our community, to reach our community with the gospel, I pray we'd be encouraged around the table. So if it is your confession that Christ is Lord, and that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that it is not of your works, it is by the grace of God, through faith in Christ, through the work of Christ on the cross. If that is your confession, I invite you to come and partake of the table. Come out the middle and out the side.
do not give you anything new, but something old. Christ Jesus, on the night when he betrayed, took bread, gave thanks, and he broke it, saying, This is my body, broken for you. Let's take the bread in remembrance of Christ's broken body. In the same manner, after the meal, he took the cup, and he gave it to them, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant, poured out for the blood of the new covenant poured out for the sins, forgiveness of sins of many. Let us take the cup in remembrance of Christ shed blood. We know from the New Testament that says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim Christ's death until he comes, which is truly the mission of the church. Let's close in prayer and then let's close in the doxology. I want to close with the prayer that we opened with, that old prayer from 1595 from the Scottish Psalter. I believe it is so relevant to this passage. O Lord, the plentiful store of all happiness, since it has pleased thee of thy free grace, free mercy and goodness to choose us for thy own heritage and to regenerate us spiritually, entertain us under thy wings unto the end, and grant that we may daily grow in the knowledge of thy goodness, truth, and mercy, which thou hast manifested unto us through our Redeemer and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Will you stand with me? And let's close in the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here be. words of Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Amen. <gasps>